Let's pray. God, steer our hearts and our minds and our focuses toward you. May our worship continue in your word, um, not just in song, but also in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Charles Darwin, who's very popular in church circles, uh, once said belief was, and I quote, the most complete of all distinctions between man and the lower animals. Um, Karl Marx, who's also famous in church circles, famously stated that religion is the opiate of the masses, implying that belief or faith or religion has the potential to calm and soothe tumultuous souls. And that wasn't really his intent, although if you think about it at the time that he would have said that, uh, opiates were the common painkiller. So um, anyway, take that, Karl Marx. You had an unintended consequence. Uh, and Benjamin Franklin who actually is uh, popular in church circles, was a great admirer of the evangelist George Whitfield. He would commonly attend Whitfield's open-air sermons and his revivals in colonial America. And when he was asked by a friend once why he attended, since he didn't believe anything Whitfield said, uh, Franklin emphatically replied, I, I know I don't, but he does. He believes it. So what are these three quotes by men who, who uh, famously contributed to anti-Christ sentiments have to do with one another? Well, they all highlight the power of belief. That strange sensation when a person realizes that they must trust something outside of themselves and their own intellects. Uh, when a person believes someone is able to do something or, or when something is able to happen, even if they can't bring it about themselves. That's ultimately what belief is. When you realize that you are insufficient, but someone or something is sufficient. Belief is a powerful thing. But the flip side of belief is really rejection where something is seen as too fantastic to be true, and therefore it's worthy of being rejected. Today we're going to witness an encounter where Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. We'll be closing out Matthew 13 today. Uh, and we're going to see Jesus be rejected by those who knew him growing up. But we're also going to see Christ reject those who reject him, which is really the most terrifying reality uh, that, that Jesus brings into his teaching and his life, where those who reject him are therefore rejected. So let's, let's read again Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. 
So where does belief come into this? Where, where, where do we get the idea, or not the idea, but where, where, where did their rejection of, of Jesus become unbelief? Why did that happen? What, what went wrong? That, those are really the questions that, that are raised by this text. In uh, verse 53 and the beginning of 54, you see a progression in the narrative moving on from the rest of Matthew 13. The whole of Matthew 13 has been parables, except for this. Well, parables and explanation of parables. You see, uh, you see Jesus has finished teaching in Capernaum, and now he's moved away from the Sea of Galilee southwest to the town of Nazareth, which frankly was a bit of a slum. It wasn't a good place. It's why, it's, it's why people throughout Jesus' ministry have asked the question, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was like the dunghole of, uh, of, 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 of the whole system of Israel. It was the place that was seen as the garbage dump because the people there were terrible. But this is the place that Jesus grew up, the place where he, according to the, the gospel writer Luke, uh, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom in Luke 2.40. And there's countless legends surrounding Jesus' childhood. One such legend is that every time he saw a dying bird, he would pick it up and heal it. Or another found in the heretical gospel of Thomas which was not written by Thomas, uh, there, there's a story of a boy named Zanon who falls off a roof and dies, and then Jesus resurrects him. Unfortunately, you're never going to see these tales in the Bible. Why? Because the Bible actually does not include anything about Jesus' childhood except Luke 2.40, where he grew up and grew in wisdom. Honestly, those legends, I don't think, are in, even in the slightest bit true. And the reason I think they're, they're not true is because of how the people of Nazareth responded to Jesus teaching in the synagogue. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I just, no, I, I, I promise I'll get there. So in our, verse, in, our, in our first verse and a half, we find a scene change. We find Jesus leaving Capernaum where he's done all this teaching, all these parables, uh, where most of his miracles probably happened around the Sea of Galilee. So he's moving from this open air, but he's going back to his original style of going inside the synagogue and teaching. So when Jesus comes to his own hometown synagogue, he does what he does everywhere else. He opens up the scriptures, he reads from them, he interprets them, and something peculiar happens. Not peculiar to when Jesus teaches, but probably peculiar to the people of Nazareth. We read in verse 54 that he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, there's two words that can possibly mean a level of astonishment in Greek. Uh, this one literally means to be struck out of oneself. It's, it, it, well, its construction doesn't matter, but that's exactly what it means, to be struck out of oneself. And that, that kind of well describes the word astonished, right? Like if you're astonished about something, your instant reaction is to gasp for air, right? <gasps> that's just what it means to be astonished. 
means to be greatly surprised. That's the English meaning. Uh, these people knew Jesus, right? They, they knew his family, his upbringing, his trade. They probably actually had some pieces of, of Jesus's craftsmanship in their own homes. He probably helped his father Joseph make many of the, the, the plowshares, the beams and homes, the door frames, the doors. He probably even made some people storage chests. They knew this guy. They, 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 they commissioned him to make stuff for him. They were really familiar with this carpenter's son who had become a carpenter. But he had left the town and now he's creating some sort of a stir with miraculous healings and poignant teachings. And then he comes right back to his hometown and does it there. But instead of being in awe which is the Greek word phobos or phobia, where that's where we get it, a fear or a reverence, being in awe of Jesus, going, wow, wow, this guy, he knows his stuff. Where did he get these teachings? I, this is so worthy of being believed. Instead of being in awe, they were astonished. And, and, and instead of being in awe of God who sent Jesus, had obviously anointed Jesus for this task, they, they instead were struck into themselves and they were offended. We'll get there. But they, 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 they were struck out of themselves and you can kind of think of it like a rubber band, right? You pull a rubber band apart and what happens when you let go of one side? Snaps right back. They rubber banded themselves back to a belief of their own experience of how much they knew Jesus. They couldn't believe that he was saying these things, that he was filled with this wisdom. Why? Because they already knew the man Jesus. And he wasn't a prophet in their eyes. For months in our time in Matthew... I, I, we, we've seen how the Pharisees and the scribes, with their familiarity with the Old Testament, really should have been the first people to accept Jesus as Messiah. Well, here in Matthew 13, we found probably the second people that should have accepted Jesus as Messiah. But instead of seeing this hometown boy grown into a prophet, gone out and done these amazing things... Now, now, now they think it's simply impossible that Jesus could be the Messiah. Their, their, their familiar, familiarity with Jesus as the man made it impossible for them to see Jesus as the Son of God. Now, I want to go back to what I mentioned before, where, where those legends of Jesus, right, uh, they're, they're implausible. Why are they implausible? Because, frankly, if you had some miracle-working child going around healing birds and kids who fall off roofs, who, by the way, the guy, the guy Zanon, uh, his, his word literally means life. So it seems a little convenient that the guy that, that's named Life would fall off a roof and die and get resurrected to life. Anyway, just, my, my own personal thing there. But it would seem implausible that Jesus did miraculous works when he was a child because, frankly, the, the town would have believed. They would have been like, yeah, go Jesus. You go do that ministry. We hope to see you again. But instead, this what we read here is Jesus' probable second return to Nazareth and the first time they tried to kill him because he said that the Gentiles were included in God's plan of redemption. 
It's in Luke 4, if you want to cross-reference. So here, here Jesus is being gracious, as he is with all of us, where, where we all get those second chances. And here Nazareth is being given a second chance. God's grace, his kindness extended of him going back again. And not only do they not believe him, but they go, we know this guy's family. We, we, we know him. He was a carpenter. Who does he think he is? Weirdo. Instead, they look at him and go, nope, not possible. The normal kid from our town can't possibly be more than any of the rest of us. They had no humility. They didn't care. They didn't care to listen to who Jesus is. They only cared about who he was to them before. And a side note also, notice that Jesus had, had brothers and sisters. Uh, this, there is a Roman Catholic view of, of Mary, of her being a perpetual virgin. And so they, they couch this and they say, well, these obviously were from Joseph's previous marriage. There is literally no textual evidence for that. None. It, it, would, it, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be normal for, for a man to have this many kids and then get remarried. It's not normal now. <laughs> it wasn't normal then either. So it, it would have been convenient if the gospel writers had included even one sentence and these were Joseph's, they, uh, the, these were Joseph's children by another marriage, but, but it's not there. So frankly, it's not, it's not. Anyway, the veneration of Mary is a whole other topic. Just wanted to point that out. If you ever have somebody say, yeah, Mary was a perpetual virgin, you can just go Matthew 13, 53 to 58. Doubt it. Uh, anyway, so, so what, what really is the issue at play here, right? Why are Jesus' own friends and neighbors rejecting him as the Messiah? The real issue is that their familiarity with Jesus as the man had brought them to sin. They had become so familiar with him that they had become complacent. They, they, they couldn't... They couldn't listen to him. Why? Because, frankly, they figured they were smarter than he was. Because of their hardened hearts, they thought they knew better than Jesus. In the words of Paul Tripp, who wrote a great book called Awe, very simple title, uh, he, he writes in it, Because of sin, awe of God is very quickly replaced by awe of self. So here we have them being astonished at Jesus' teaching, but not that reverent astonishment, just kind of, just kind of how, who does he think he is saying these things? Where did he get this pedigree? Where did he get his education? That's right, he didn't. His family is here. Oh, well, maybe we shouldn't listen to him then. That was their problem. They were astonished and not in awe. Their astonishment didn't turn them to an awe of God. Instead, it turned them to an awe of themselves and how they knew better. They're, 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 they had no reverence for God. They had no reverence for what Jesus was saying. In fact, they even acknowledge his mighty works. Where did this man get this wisdom and his mighty works? Pfft. Probably making it all up. They didn't have a, the humility to bend their, their knees to this carpenter who very clearly had something peculiar and spectacular about him. They had the wrong awe. 
So I want to ask you something. When was the last time you were amazed at Jesus? When was the last time you, you saw something in his word, you listened to his teaching, and you felt the need to fall down and worship him? When was the last time you realized that your thoughts about God were wrong or misplaced, or maybe you misunderstood something, and then you were confronted in your reading of God's word or, or, or the presentation of God's word through, through sermon or Bible study or something? When were you convicted that you were wrong and God was right, and therefore you needed to bend your knee in humility and worship him? Because the reality is that you and I will never master God. We will never know enough about him. In fact, all of, all of eternal life, new heavens and new earth, we're going to be finding new ways to worship God. Why? Because we find new facets about him that we never knew before because he is an endless well of wonder and amazement. We will be forever in awe of him. And if you are not in awe of him here, then your awe of him has been replaced by an awe of you. By the way, I'm preaching that to myself more than I am to you. Because there are times when I plead with God, please, God, inflame my heart to worship you. And because of my own sin and self-satisfying uh, thoughts of how I know everything, they, they blind me to it, but I know it's a problem. And then God crushes me and brings me to humble repentance. It's not fun to be crushed by God, but it is amazing thing. It is an amazing thing to be crushed by God because it reminds me that, hey, I don't know every word of this word. And I have a sentence in here that is, that, that, that is directed toward myself, but it's also directed towards you because those who think they've mastered the Bible are in desperate need of being mastered by it. Are you somebody who's mastered by the Bible, or do you think you've mastered it yourself? Because once a person thinks they know everything about God, ultimately, all they're able to do is be offended. Because when anything contradicts what that says, or, or when anybody stands up to them, all they can do is say, no, 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 I know everything. Kind of like the Nazarenes here. And this is actually one of the reasons it's hardest to bring the gospel to somebody who's grown up in a Christian household, because they know the lingo, right? They already know it. Why do they need to hear it again? They've already heard this. Whether it was in summary or whether it was in, in actual study, they've heard it before. They don't need to hear it again. And, and you can go to somebody and you can say, hey, this is the good news of Jesus. And you know what they respond? I already know that. Why? Because they are hard-hearted. They already know what this carpenter did. They know his family. They know what he said. They, they, they also probably know how ugly his wife is, the church. He can't possibly be as good as you say he is. I already, I already know these stories. Move on. You see, people like this have that same familiarity that the Nazarenes had. It produces complacent, self-amazed hard-heartedness. They live that old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. You heard that? Therefore, if you think you know God and his word well enough, repent. You don't. You're never gonna. <laughs> You're never going to. Don't be like the Nazarenes who reject their own hometown Messiah. 
Do not think that you've learned enough or that you've learned even rightly the first time or completely the first time. There are a lot of times that I'm like, oh yeah, I know that. And then I start reading a book about it. Uh, I read a, I, I, I just read, I, I just finished a book called Lead. And I've read a lot of leadership books, a lot of them that are just absolute garbage, um, come from a worldly perspective. Other ones that, are, that say, this is how you do it in church. And you know what? Frankly, I came away from this book being constantly confronted of what it means to lead and what it looks like to lead and how, how, how easy it is to be overbearing and, and, and mean and, and, and strong arm people and how that, that even exists in my own heart and soul. And frankly, I didn't think of myself as that sort of a leader, but you know what? It's there. <laughs> that temptation is there. And I was confronted in God's word, specifically through the Apostle Paul most frequently, that well, I, didn't, I didn't know enough. You're never going to learn enough. You're never going to know it all. So if you think you've learned enough, that you learned it rightly the first time, read God's word entirely, every single page, again, and again, and again, and again. And I, I, I challenge you to have days where you're like, gee, I knew that story completely. It's not going to happen. Pray that God confronts you and that you might confront those who have grown too familiar and they've become complacent. You see, the cure to complacency in Christ, the, the, the cure to complacency in any manner of Christianity is always going to be a humility that leads to awe, fear, and amazement at all that you do not know. It's a precious humility that allows us to have the right kind of astonishment. But the Nazarenes did not have that kind of astonishment. They didn't. Just, just, read, just read their excuses again. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters or all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? How, how normal of complaints are those? I mean, some of you, some of you are still in that like school period. But man, there are times when I'm looking at Facebook and I see, I have a friend who, uh, she, was a, she, was, she was a senator's aide. Um, and when, when, when I saw that, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Her? <laughs> she, I know she liked political science, but her? You serious? No. That has to be a cardboard cutout of that senator. That can't be a real picture. And I am serious. That's what I thought because it, it, looked, it looked a little fake. But <laughs> like, you know, usually you have a picture of the person's arm around the person, but not in this picture. He's just standing there with his hands in his pockets. Looked like a perfect cardboard cutout. Anyway, I, I almost couldn't believe it. This friend of mine, nah, nah way. That's, that's not true. These are normal complaints. These are normal things that somebody would come up with in order to reject somebody else's success. You think about Jeff Bezos or Donald Trump or any of the millionaires out there, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. At some point, there was somebody who read that name in the article and they're like, no, 
no, that can't be the guy I knew. Just can't be. But it was. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus grew up in a dung hole like Nazareth. And, and he came out of that, but not for the purpose of growing up out of it and moving himself out of the sticks. He, he grew up there. He grew in strength and in wisdom. And all these people missed it. The whole town of Nazareth missed it. Most of his family missed it. They were too familiar with him. Sometimes familiarity becomes unbelief, friends. Sometimes knowing too much means that you can't grow anymore. Sometimes being too close to the source actually makes you turn your back on it. And this is coming from a pastor who says, hey, read God's word, read God's word, read God's word. How are you reading God's word? How's it going with reading God's word? What book and chapter and verse are you in? What, what, like, yeah, sometimes reading the Bible is a problem, but it's only when you read it only to bolster your own knowledge instead of really read it to worship the Savior. The people that were sitting in the synagogue could have very easily sat with open ears and open eyes and open hearts, and they could have gone, wow, wow, this was fulfilled in my hearing, as Jesus did in the other time he visited Nazareth. Anyway, but, but, the, but they, they could have sat under this, and they could have just been amazed. They could have been in awe of God, but instead, they stuck their own noses in, into Jesus' business and said, mm-mm, can't be. There's no way he knows more than us. He's from Nazareth. Anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, frankly, I'm from Beaverton. The question, the question is often raised, can anything good come out of Portland? Because <laughs> that's the same place in people's minds. No, not really. <laughs> Just to answer the question. Our final verses conclude with the curse that follows that sort of familiarity that goes into unbelief. Instead of being astonished into being reverent, the Nazarenes took offense at him. They were offended by him. They had no self-examination, no humility, no care, no compassion on, on, on their own souls. Instead, they just get offended. Such is the way of hard-hearted people. They take offense instead of being willing to be humbled. They live out the words of Solomon, Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And that's where the Nazarenes went wrong. They didn't seek to understand. They just wanted to express their opinion that they already knew that Jesus. And that Jesus couldn't be who, who he said he was. And then Jesus condemns that attitude. He condemns their complacency by saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. But even worse than that rebuke, because that rebuke, honestly, like that rebuke could have made somebody go, you know, actually, my, my, heart, my heart is a little hard. Even worse than the rebuke is actually the curse that followed it in verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
Why didn't he do many mighty works? Well, the Lord has his reasons for doing those mighty works, those miraculous healings. And they always happen to, to usher in his kingdom and to strengthen the faith of believers, not to convince unbelievers. And we see that most clearly on display here. God doesn't do miraculous works in order to convince people to believe in him. No, in fact, when people don't believe in him, he doesn't do much. Christ doesn't put on a show for the purpose of conversion. Nor is he hindered by unbelief. He often refuses to do miracles for unbelievers, even, even when it could have saved his own life. If you, if you were to open up Luke 23, verses 6 to 12, Jesus is thrown before Herod, right? And Herod wants, wants him to put on a show. He doesn't actually believe who Jesus is, but he's heard about him. And so he says, hey, hey, show me some of your miraculous works. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. Many like to argue this. They like to the, argue the parallel of this in Mark 6, uh, where Mark actually says, quite literally in verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. But what Mark is saying is not that Jesus was not able. He's not saying that Jesus doesn't have the power to do these miracles. It's that he really had no reason to do them. Jesus' mighty works were never meant to convince people that he was who he was, but to glorify his Father in showing who he was. This is why we often hear that Jesus say that, that all, all so often refrain of your faith has made you well. Like in Matthew 9.22 or Mark 5.34 or Luke 17.19 or Luke 18.42 or John 6. Anyway, I could, I could keep going. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Why? Because he wants to show. He wants to show that he is already who he is. Therefore, we must remember that God's will is that his glory would be revealed to those who have faith, who have humility, who are not complacent who are not in the need of convincing. We must not be those who are so hard-hearted that Christ is compelled to avoid doing things. Amen? We must be people of his word, people who hang on him and not on, our, on ourselves, who lean on him and not on our own understanding. Sounds like a Bible verse. People who always check our theology with scripture, who avoid cherry picking our favorite Bible verses to support what we want God to be like. Instead, we need to be the type of people that are amazed and, and fearful of who God is. In, uh, in Amos... You know, when was the last time you read Amos? Rick and I very recently. But uh, in, in Amos, uh, we find a terrible famine on Israel and Judah. But the famine is not actually in food, although that does come. But in Amos, 11, uh, Amos 8, 11, and 12, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That is a true famine, friends. And that's the famine that Nazareth got. 
They didn't believe who Jesus was. And so therefore, Jesus didn't do anything. He gave them the famine they wanted. And because we want to be people who actually do humble ourselves before what we read in Matthew 13, we should actually start asking ourselves, are are we like the Nazarenes? Have we grown complacent? Why, 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 Why is God limiting his works here in Toledo? Is it perhaps because our faith has grown weak? Are we not humble before the Lord and who he is? Or even even worse, and this sentence hit home when I wrote it, where have you or we or me as a, as a group, right, acted as if we know who God is, and therefore God has decided to hold back his hand from us? Has that happened? Is there an area where we need to repent, where you need to repent, where I need to repent? And I don't mean to say just numerical growth, because frankly, megachurches are often, often a condemnation on themselves. But it would be a failure for us to not read this, to read the response of the Nazarenes. I already know Jesus. I don't need to know Jesus anymore. I know who Jesus is. It would be a failure on us to not read those verses and go, wait a second, is that me? Am I doing that? Am I not in awe of God where I need to be in awe of him? Are you? So that's where I want to conclude. I want us to think about that. So I'm going to pray. God, I don't know my blind spots but by your grace, you often reveal them to me. I pray that you would reveal to all of us our blind spots, that we would not be like your Nazarenes, who, frankly, we would love here in this church to be like your hometown in the sense that you, reserve, you come back triumphantly and, and, and teach us your word. But God, we don't want to be like your hometown in the sense that we've lost our first love that we don't know who you are, and yet we pretend like we do. So God, help us to search our own hearts and our own souls. Help us to repent where we need to repent. Help us to not be hard-hearted, but instead soft-hearted. Open to your gospel. Open to that good news of the reconciling love that you brought by your own sacrificial death on the cross. Warm our hearts. Fill us with worship of you, God. You are worthy. We are so unworthy, unworthy to be called yours. We're sinners. We need redemption. We need sanctification. God, humble us in that truth and steer us toward you that we might worship you well with soft hearts, honoring you where you are due that honor. In Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as you go home, my suggestion to you is that you pray that God make us not like the Nazarenes. Go in peace, saints.